This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T, and you are listening to episode 87. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. First off, I'd like to thank everyone who joined us in Las Vegas for our annual event, the Planet Microcap Showcase. Putting on these events is a lot of hard work, and what makes it all worth it is having the chance to meet you all. We really enjoy putting on this event and look forward to continue to build and foster a strong, vibrant microcap community. Secondly, Planet Microcap Podcast will be coming to YouTube. Starting with this episode, all archived episodes and each new episode will be posted on SNN Network's YouTube channel. I provided the link in the description if you'd like to subscribe. And you'll also get the chance to watch all of our video interviews with management teams, educational panels from the conference, as well as expert commentary from some familiar guests on the podcast. And now, I'm pleased to present to you our annual podcast episode, Planet Microcap Podcast Live Volume 3. This episode is always so much fun for me to do, especially after a full day of conference organizing. For this year, I invited back a few veterans of the live episode, Jason Hirschman, Chris Lahiji, and Sam Namiri, and making his first appearance on this panel, Connor Haley. This year, we discussed everyone's investing style, market events, management teams, how each of my guests defines special situations, and closed it out with their thoughts on how they would change the microcap ecosystem and what's in store for the rest of 2019. I would like to thank Connor, Jason, Chris, and Sam for joining me on this panel, and to everyone who came to the Planet Microcap Showcase 2019. I look forward to seeing you all in 2020. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 87 of the Planet Microcap Podcast, and please enjoy the third annual Planet Microcap Podcast live. Everybody, welcome again to the Planet Microcap Showcase. You are here at the last panel of the day, so let's give a round of applause. You made it this far. This is the last, last panel before the cocktail event, and uh, I promise that it is sure not to be a boring one. Mm -hmm. So this is... I don't know how many of you know this, but the name of the conference is actually named after this podcast that I started about four years ago called the Planet Microcap Podcast, which is all about educating the next generation of investors how to approach investing in microcap stocks. And every year since we moved the conference to, uh, to Planet Hollywood and now to Bally's, I always wanted to do a live panel with some of uh, the people that I've had on that really provided some great insight and, uh, you know, that... You know, develop Bobby, you could say the, the best. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the best. Well, I know Toby's not on this, uh, <laughs> but if there was, it would be the best right here. Toby, anytime you want to come up, please, exactly. you can replace me. You, you qualify. <laughs> 
But without further ado, so this is our third annual Planet Microcap podcast live panel, and I'm very excited to have these panelists here with me today. Just to give you a quick introduction as to who they are, to my direct left is Sam Namiri from Ridgewood Investments. I have Jason Hirschman, otherwise known as 8-Track on the Microcap Club and also on Twitter and our Hirschman Family Trust, right? <laughs> we also have Connor Haley from Alta Fox Capital and uh, the number one ranked Microcap Club investor. The best! <laughs> and Chris Lahiji, who is the founder and CEO of Citrus Hawk. Yeah, not that important. <laughs> and LD Micro, of course. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Raul. <laughs> So just to start off, so for those of you who may not know uh, who is with me here today, I'd like each of my panelists to give a quick background as to who they are. So to start off, Sam, the floor is yours. Sure, I'll do it very quickly. Um, I initially found, at a, when I was in college, I founded a jewelry company, and uh, it was called Shop Network. Eventually, I started a TV show, had a factory overseas, and then realize, I think Warren Buffett says it best, the best lesson that someone could learn as an investor is to run a really crappy business, and so, in a cap crappy industry, so I realized at some point that that wasn't a great business long term, um, ended up going to Columbia Business School, and since then been a value investor ever since. I worked at a hedge fund out in New York, small cap hedge fund, and then I ended up launching my own uh, with Ridgewood in about a year and a half ago, so that's my background. Jason? Well, uh, just first of all, I, I my day job is actually in prescription safety eyewear frames, so I think that's that's <laughs> really? crappier than your business. So uh, you have a day job? I do have a day job. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's I crazy. do actually have a day job. My, but my left eye has been bothering me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think a lot of things bothering you, Chris. But uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I've been investing in my own fund and funds and my family's fund since the mid '90s, which I think makes me the senior citizen on this panel. Uh, even though I don't, Chris actually was probably making trades in the uh, during preschool nap time, but yes, but still, uh, yeah, I've been investing since the mid '90s, and and uh, you know happy to be here. I've, like I said, I've uh, been a microcap club, a track, uh, investing in microcaps and, and all caps since then, and uh, happy to discuss anything you guys have to say. Connor, I run uh, Alta Fox Capital out of Dallas Fort Worth area. It's a longshore hedge fund focused primarily on small and microcap securities. Uh, prior to that, I spent time at um, Two small cap hedge funds, Osmium Partners and uh, Baker Street Capital, as well as uh, Goldman Sachs Special Situations Group, and then uh, most recently spent about four years at Scopia Capital, a hedge fund in New York. I found it out to Fox Capital about a year ago. And you're a graduate of Harvard. <laughs> Chris. Yeah. Um, so my name is Chris Lahiji. I'm the founder of LD Micro. Um, for me, it has always been uh, uh, probably the easiest thing I. I've done in my life, which is invest in small companies. Um, from a very, very early age, I was always fascinated by this simple concept that an individual can own a piece of a company regardless of what the size is. And um, I've been really focused on con trying to find the next generation of winners along with this group. So Chris, coming right back to you, you know, again, I wanted to briefly go over this as well. I know we spend usually an hour in our interviews going over this, but yeah. briefly, you know, could you explain your investing style, value growth, value plus growth? So we're generalists for the most part. If you look at our the largest holdings, you have a strip club, you have a market <laughs> maker, uh, you have a laundry company, um, and, you know, you have what we're primarily look, looking for is, is value at a discount. That's what we look at. We're trying to find dollars 
for 50, 60 cents that make five to 15 cents a year. But as you guys know, in the world of microcap, it's the storylines, the growth stocks that are by far and away the most fascinating. So I try to allocate as much money as I can to a large basket of companies and then focus on five to 10 that I think have all the ingredients necessary to succeed. Gotcha. Connor? Sure. Um, I would say I, I tend to really put a lot of emphasis on the quality of the business, quality of the management team. You know, within the small microcap space, you know, there's a lot of companies and, you know, a lot of them do not fit that criteria. Most of them do not, actually. But I think the rewards for finding the really high quality businesses is certainly outsized in the small and microcap space. And that's what I try to focus on. So I, I try to find high quality businesses, management teams, take a differentiated view on sort of normalized earnings power over the next sort of three to five years and place my bet. Jason? I would say in uh, taxable accounts, I'm a growth investor looking for names with a multi-year sort of tailwind. In, in a tax-deferred accounts, I'm more agnostic. I'll do uh, growth plays and value plays. Sam? Um, I'd say the easiest way to explain my investing style is I'm similar to Connor, where it's like about value and, um, and looking at good management teams. But I do a lot of due diligence. So I go to a lot of trade shows to try to you know, look at all different aspects of a business. And I, I try to be, the, I guess, one of the first people or um, one of the people that knows the most about a specific company. And, I, and I, my investing style is also very concentrated as well because of that investment philosophy that I have or strategy. Um, so it's kind of like private equity type investing in public markets with ideally not as much leverage in the companies. Gotcha. So, you know, I want to also get into some recent events that have happened on here. And, and Chris, I'm going to come to you on this because you, you look at the data as quite a bit on LDmicro.com. And, um, you know, at, at the end of last year, we saw markets go down a bit. And then looking at the LD Micro Index, it peaked around 2,500, then dipped around 1,800. You know, what, what happened during Q4 in 2018? And then why do you think there was a quick bounce back in Q1 of 2019? And uh, we'll get everybody's opinion on this, but I mean, Chris? It was, it was extraordinary. I mean, you had a lot of guys in microcap that operate hedge funds and mutual funds that are up 15, 20, 25% for the year going into Q4. And then sure enough, by Christmas Eve, everyone is down. And the reason why we created the index in the first place was we wanted to showcase that there was a huge discrepancy between us and the Russell. So I think the Russell was down 28 and we were down 36 at, at, at the bottom. But for me, I think it was just, you know, there was just a lot of, it was selling to get selling. I think a lot of it was ultimately quantitative in nature. And uh, the reason I think there was a bounce back is because, you know, there is just so much money out there that needs to be deployed somewhere. And, you know, I don't know if these guys have seen it, but in the world of microcap, I mean, you have bigger firms now that are finally kind of looking at these 100, 200, 300 million market caps that were never here two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. And while I welcome that, it's, it's also you know, one of these things where I think that as a, as a composite, we really haven't participated the way that other segments of the market have. Mm -hmm. Well, just to come back to you real quick on that, because some people might see that and say, oh, is that signs of a, you know, a top or something like that? I mean, in your opinion, do you see that? Because now there's all these firms that are starting to get interested in it? or is Brother, I've been, listen, I've been wrong. Seen, I've been wrong for 17 years. <laughs> <laughs> I've been wrong. I've been, I've been telling people, like, if, I don't know if anyone's seen the show Doomsday Preppers. That's like, that's like my household, where it's like, do you have the 1,000-gallon tank of water ready, Chris? It's like, yeah, Dad, I do. It's like... What about the pumped up Suburban? Is that ready? Yeah, Dad. It's like kerosene, you got it. So look, the, 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 
And I went, I've done over 150 interviews on TV discussing this. To me, a successful economy is one that everyone participates in, mm -hmm. not just a very small subset of a very small percentage of people, okay? You, if you look at the separation between the wealthy and the poor in the last 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years, historically, there's gonna be repercussions. Mm -hmm. So if, if I go to, say, Menlo Circus Club, and you ask around how things are, everyone's like, Chris, never been wealthier. You know, assets have never looked this good. And then you go to the Spartan final a mile and a half away, and you could see the real struggle. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's, I've always kind of, how can I put this? Uh, I've never thought that the economy that we're all seeing today is as healthy and bountiful and successful as what, the, what some of the media permeates or what a lot of economists look at. So for 2002, I've had kind of a negative bet towards everything. And I don't have to tell anyone this. Uh, since 2002, prices have, have ripped. You know, they've gone a lot, lot higher. So my, my take is, is if usually someone's wrong for a couple of years, give them the benefit of the doubt. But if someone's been wrong for 17 years running, <laughs> they shouldn't even have an opinion. So I, 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 I don't even know if I answered the question. question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, was, it may have been one of those Miss America questions. You spoke a lot yeah. for someone who doesn't have an opinion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. So but, I actually want to throw to Jason now because, oh, you know, wow, from, okay. oh, yeah, we're oh, going wow, to Oh, wow, look at that. So I, I, similar question, you know, from the retail perspective. I mean, you know, there's, uh, how, how did you approach it? I mean, when you saw this happening, you know, did you have your names that you're like, all right, great, you know, let's I mean, wait till I, this go down. I, I mean, I had, I had some cash, so it was, it was an opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think a lot of times uh, you look at these, these pullbacks, all depending on whether you have cash or not. If you have cash, you think it's great. If you don't have cash, you're kind of disappointed. Uh, but, but honestly, I mean, I, I think it was a little, I, I remember the mid-2015, 2016 pullback in microcaps as being much more painful. It was prolonged. And then you know the the uh, your large cap friends got you know got off the floor and started running and we were still you know micro cap stuck in the fetal position on the ground. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a lot more painful than this one here. I mean everything went down in the world. So misery loves company. It didn't bother me that much. Well, no, Jason, it was just the severity and the speed that it the took speed, place. Yeah, because you have guys that are up twenty some odd percent with 50, 60 million under management. And they're thinking about what cars they want to buy for the following year, all to be down for the year. Yeah, but they're always crying, right? Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a good point. Cool, Sam. I want to throw it to you. Um, so I don't. I think similar to maybe Jason, I don't really think about macro too much or about the. Uh, it, it's a, it, for me, it's a buying opportunity, and I think a testament of that is so. Like for our investors, we try to educate them in advance and kind of. You know, in the microcap world especially, as you can see in the LD micro index, like it gets hurt a lot more. So volatility, like you kind of have to embrace it. And so we have around like 300 investors, or two, sorry, 200 investors in Ridgewood, and we didn't get one call at all during the fourth quarter. We actually only got one call, and they were <laughs> saying, hey, is this a good time for us to put more money in or not? So for us, it's about having the right investors in place so that we can invest in companies at times like that in the fourth quarter, you know, when they're their values have dropped a lot and we don't really see the businesses performing worse at all in any, in any way or sense of form or even if the economy you know, takes a dip. Um, I, I think a, a, an analogy that I've heard recently was to look at like a tide pool and you know, when things are in high tide, you know, there's certain, like pretty much every animal can survive in high tide, like fish can survive. And then in low tide, there's certain things that can survive like starfish. But you know, the fish that don't survive, like what can take advantage of that? And 
uh, there's like crabs, right? They can go and eat the fish when there's low tide that, 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 that die. And so it's a dirty <laughs> analogy, but um, you know, that's, that's ideally as a capital allocator, what you want to be able to do is in those times when it's low tide, you take advantage of the easy pickings. And so, I mean, the greatest example of that is, is Berkshire Hathaway, really. You know, Warren Buffett takes advantage of, you know, companies that are good, solid companies during times when they're, you know, when they need, need a little bit of help. So, and he's there to provide that help. And so. All I know is that high tide, low tide, I got my ass handed to me. <laughs> and, and the reason why he didn't get any phone calls is because they were submitting redemptions based off email. <laughs> <laughs> I love how we're the only guys that got that joke. You know? <laughs> Sam, real quick, yeah. shareholder in Berkshire. Uh, our firm does own shares in Berkshire. Oh yes. my God. <laughs> Such a cop out, dude. Hasn't that underperformed for like 15 years in a row? That is now? so weak. <laughs> I didn't tell you when I bought the shares. <laughs> hey, Connor, I wanted to throw to you now. Same question. What's your take? Um, look, Q4 was an extraordinary period in the markets. Um, you know, I was down in Q4. Uh, felt very lucky to be up for the year. I think uh, there were some extraordinary buying opportunities in Q4 as well, though. I mean. Yeah, I can't tell you why the markets went down in Q4. I can't tell you why we've had the rebound thus far in Q1. All I can say is um, I have a lot more conviction in telling you whether, you know, the joint chiropractic company is going to have more customers in their stores and how many stores are going to be opening. You know, really, what are you, you going to bet on, right? Uh, I, I, like to, I like to find sort of micro bottom-up theses that I have a lot of conviction in and you know, when you've done your homework and the market's ripping and the market's tanking around you and everything's being sold off, you know there's going to be some opportunity and that, that's when you're able to really apply your work. So Q4 was an extraordinary period, period, but I think it had a lot of opportunities and now we're sort of seeing, seeing the reverse of that. Gotcha. But brother, and, Q1 and has been ex historic as well. And I, I do own the joint. Gotcha. So actually, Connor, I'm going to come right back to you because, uh, you know, on our, on our pre-conference call, we had a really nice discussion about uh, management teams. And one question that was posed is if someone is a really good manager of a microcap company, why is their company still a microcap company? Excellent question. <laughs> for all the executives in right. the audience. For all the yeah. executives here, yes. Hmm. I, mean, I, I think it can be um, a multitude of answers. I mean, I, I think, you know, one, it could be it's not a good company. It could be it's not a good management team. But there are many other possible answers. It could be they're early in the growth cycle. It could be it's a good business, but it's a niche business, you know. Um, an example would be, Something like J Date from many years ago, Spark Networks, right? L O V. Um, you know, it, it had a Jewish dating site. It was it was a good business, but you know, they, they really didn't have any competitive advantage outside of that. It's a really good niche, good returns on capital, but once you go outside and start doing general affinity dating, they had no advantage. And this was before they were sort of crushed by I disagree with Connor. I think that ChristianMingles.com had a very wide moat. <laughs> <laughs> and you're overlooking that in your investment thesis. We, we all know you're on all the dating sites, Chris. Um, but so, so yeah, Premium user. <laughs> Premium. <laughs> And for full disclosure, do we own any Spark Networks? I do not own any Of course, Spark. now that the stock is ripped. Do we use Spark Networks? <laughs> do not use Spark. No, I've met his wife. Yeah, she's cool. So, so Sam, what, what's your take on this question as well? I know, I think you were actually the one that might have posed it. So, yeah. uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that similar, like, it's like sometimes people are early. I think sometimes it takes longer to actually grow a business and to think long term. You know, Sometimes you, you get in, you start doing the right things, you don't start seeing the results for two, three, four, five years, who, who knows? And usually it always takes longer than what you expect. 
Um, one of the strategies or one of the things I've started to look at more is looking at management teams that are new that have in the past already grown a microcap business to a smaller mid-cap business. And so that's one of the screens that I, I look for. Um, it's, it's hard to look for because you have to actually do the work to look for that. But um, I've, I've, I've been doing this long enough now that I know of like I, I follow executives, so when they go to their next the next thing or they, they go to their next business, um, I kind of follow along with them. And, and you know, the smaller they start off, the better, because then you know the room for growth is is quite incredible. Well, quick quick follow up to that. You know, so what type of do you give any leeway, let's say, to a, a management team maybe that hadn't run a public company before, or even a micro cap? You know, do you give them any sort of leeway, and so that? You can give them some room. All right, you made a couple little mistakes here, but you see the business continues to grow. Yeah, because as a, as a business owner, I don't really care about whether they've had public company experience or not, except for when it comes to capital allocation. Because as a public company, you have a little bit more, um, like I guess, options when it comes to capital allocation. You can buy back shares in the public market when you can't do that. And you can issue shares a little more easily and pay your employees in shares versus a private company. It's a little, you know, there's not as much value in doing that unless you're one of these you know, large growth, these fast growth growing companies. Um, but I, I, I effectively want a management team to run their business as if it's private, because I don't really care about what happens next quarter, two quarters. I want to know like multiple years down the line how, how the business performs. And as a public company, a lot of times you get caught up in the thinking short term, and it's hard to because you're looking at your share price. You, you can of see course. your price of your share every single day. So um, I actually don't look at my portfolio every single day. I try to look at it, you know. That's because he's 100% cash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, th I think it really messes with your own mind when you look at it every single day and you look at the share price every single day because especially with the microcap companies, it's a, bid, bid, a big bid-ask spread. And so, you know, does the share price really truly mean anything in terms of the valuation of the company? Sometimes it doesn't. So, mm -hmm. I don't know. Gotcha. Jason, your take yeah, on I, this? I would just like to add that, you know, Sometimes there's a belief that any microcap company can be like MacGyvered into like great success if they just had the right management team, <laughs> and you know that's not necessarily true. Sometimes the window of opportunity is gone. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. you know the industry is just is just too stagnant or too competitive, or or, or you know just takes too much resources to grow in that area. And mm -hmm. so that's another reason why some of these you know even these you have a wonderful microcap manager, and I can think of uh, you know like. I'll, I'll just mention a company like Jones Soda. I think mm -hmm. the person who runs it is, is Jennifer. Wonderful. Jennifer. I she's think fantastic. she's great. Yeah. But I think it's just it's just too tough of an industry now to to uh, to, to, to grow in. It is, brother. But you also got to know that the brand value of that company is significantly greater than its current share price. Do you own okay. it? Uh, I do. And but but you also got to realize that the stock went from thirty cents to sixty cents too. Jason and, and back. Many times, right? Yes, that's true. <laughs> but you also, but, <laughs> but you also got to realize, my brother Jason, that in November of tw 2002, the stock was at 25 cents, and then a few years later, you're selling it at 25 bucks. That's true. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So look, look, I, I agree. The consensus is the smaller a company is, the more important management becomes. But I do agree with Jason as well. Sometimes you've missed the boat, and it's not coming back. So, so you got to get lucky with something else. And you know, I've I've made a career of basically buying companies, missing the boat, and just kind of lingering on. And then, one press release or you know one earnings report, and you're you're back in business. And that's kind of the beauty of microcap too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> did, did he say I'm the crap? The crab. Crab. In the, the analogy, crab. the oh, high tide Yeah, the crab. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Uh, crap would also be acceptable. <laughs> crap would also, depending on you know the time of year, naturally. But but no, look, I mean, the the, the beautiful thing about microcap is there's twelve thousand eight hundred companies in North America, okay, and there's bound to get there's bound to be winners in a few of them, and that's the holiest of grails for everyone at this table. It's can I buy one percent of a ten million dollar? For me, it's always been the same. Can I own one percent of a ten million dollar company that becomes a billion dollar mar market cap? And I've held on. I've had several. Of course, I sold them early, and the ones that went up a lot, I was like, "This is it. <laughs> this is the spaceship that gets me to Mars." Only to have them kind of come crashing back down. <laughs> so look, if I had one percent of of that, do you really think I'd be doing this panel right now? <laughs> I'd be what? in Barbados. What? <laughs> Not a chance in hell. It's still kind of lukewarm. But we here. bring beer. Yeah, that's good. All right. So, hey, Jason, real quick, owner in JSDA? No. Okay. <laughs> well, another follow-up that I actually had, because one theme that we talked about now for the last couple minutes here is timing. You know, and uh, I know, look, guys, it's not on the script, so I'm going off script here. Oh, you know, man. so. I'm out. <laughs> so I want to know some of your tips and tricks when it comes to figuring out timing. You know, is, is there any, but in your experience, what have you find that works best for you? Connor, I'm going to you first. Um, Let sure. me take some notes because <laughs> this guy's actually been really accurate. Hold on. I, um, you know, I, I don't really believe in market timing. I don't really believe in, you know, technical analysis. I... I really believe in, in fundamentals, and so, you know, all of my work is is trying to figure out what I think the fair value, or really the fair value range is for the companies I own and the companies on my watch list, and, you know, I sort of have a uh, projected IRR um, for every single company uh, that I own or on my watch list, and you know, I'm adjusting the portfolio and sizing based on the daily the, the daily price moves and also um, you know my, my changes in, in fundamental estimates, uh, which affect the, obviously the, IR, the IRR. So. Um, you know, for me, that keeps me sane because, you know, when the market's falling apart or the market's ripping, I don't have to be emotional about it. Um, you know, I, I sort of go back to my model, uh, sort of ask if anything fundamentally has changed. And if not, uh, I may be a buyer or maybe a seller, depending on the price action. But um, so it's, it's very quantitatively driven, but it's, it's really fundamentally driven. Gotcha. Sam? I mean, I, I almost want to repeat exactly the words that he said, so I'm not going to really go too deep. I think the only difference is because I don't look at daily movements like when stock price as much. Mm -hmm. I have like a lot of like limit orders outstanding um, because I look for things that can at least double within like a 18 month to 24 month time period. A period. few days. Huh? A few days. A few days. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I have just limit orders, so like I don't need to look at the market every day. So if it gets to the the price where I think there's at least a double within that time period, then automatically triggers and I buy some so don't you find yourself getting penny jump though if you just leave those limit orders out there no no one cares in the in the tadpoles or tide pools or whatever <laughs> Sam called he <laughs> buys like arcane stocks you know he's he's not he's not going after you know the more the more liquid companies he's kind of the only guy on the on on the bid ask uh, I mean I think it ranges there are some companies like that and then there's right. other ones that you know trade a lot and yeah. Uh, I don't even move the needle. So. Gotcha. Hey, Jason, I'm going to throw to you. Um, 
instead of timing, I wanted to move on to our next question here. And unless you want to talk timing, we could talk no, timing. No, no, let's move on. I have to say something. It's time to move on. It's time to move on. Chris, yeah. I've been doing this for since 1996, and everyone in this room, you're probably not going to remember a damn thing anybody said except what I'm going to tell you right now. <laughs> the best time to look at a company in terms of investment is two quarters before break even. We've done a lot of, you know, a lot of charts, a lot of patterns, just trying to see when the best time is to get the, 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 the cheapest price that you can for shares. It's usually two quarters before break even. How, how do you know when that time is? <laughs> <laughs> well, look. In hindsight, you, yeah, okay. I'll tell you. <laughs> let, the, let the laughter in the room die down, okay? No, I love how that generated more laughter. No, the, well, you look at you look at you look at reports. You look at uh, earnings, and when you see companies that are ultimately improving, and you ask management questions, you can kind of pinpoint where that break even is, which is why it's one of the most commonly asked questions that I have, because if a company cannot be self-sustaining in the microcap world, there is no guarantee that that company is going to be around. So. That to me is probably the most, you know, if you can figure out, if you can figure that out, you're going to make a lot of money. And, and just further clarification on the question, is that a break-even EBITDA, cash flow, like what Whatever earnings? Connor wants it to be. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever Connor wants it to be. All right. Next question. All right. Jason, going to you on this one. Okay. So this was another question that we talked about on our call and I uh, want to get your opinion on this. And we're going back to management because as we've been very clear about on this panel. It is management, 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 very key. Yes, financials, but also management. So do you judge pre-revenue and revenue-generating management teams the same in terms of performance? Ooh. Oh, that's okay. a good question. That's a good question there. Yeah. No. And I, honestly, I think you would find a lot of investors, when it comes to, to uh, revenue-generating management teams, are looking for like a, what they call a non-promotional management team. You know, somebody who's basically gives it to you straight, Tells you how it is, and and, and honestly, that's that's what I enjoy. I enjoy what I can feel like I can trust what they have to say. Right. Mostly. However, when it, when it comes to pre-revenue teams, I, I think you actually need a management team that's somewhat promotional, because they're probably going to have to go through successive rounds of, of raising money, and they have to be able to sell the story, and not just to you, but to, to the marginal investor out there who really needs to be. Uh, you know, uh, they, they need a Moses to sort of bring them across the sea. And so right. they need somebody who really can sell the story. That is not the CFO, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> not the CFO. Uh, so Apologies I, I to any CFOs who are doing their presentations tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. So that's a, that's a big difference. For actually pre-revenue uh, 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 companies, I, I do actually look for somewhat of a promotional team. Connor? I don't invest in a lot of pre-revenue companies, uh, to be honest. Um, I have invested in some, and a couple of them have been some of my best winners. But I, I would say that, um, you know, I think it's really, the incentives are even more important when you're dealing with uh, a pre-revenue company. Um, you know, it, there, there's a big difference if, you know, if you're dealing with a $20 million company, we'll call it, there's a big difference if the CEO and CFO put in, you know, $5 million of their own money in it. Um, and that's a big portion of their net worth, or oh, yeah. or if they have five million but they actually didn't put any in, you know, um, I, I think understanding the incentives of uh, pre-revenue management teams is super important because there are a lot of management teams, frankly, that are out there to, you know, try to bring shareholders along for the ride and, and finance their own sort of compensation, and um, you know, they they give unfortunately a, a sort of a bad rap to the legitimate pre-revenue companies. <laughs> 
<laughs> that uh, you know are, are really that really have a have, have a good story. Cool, Chris. Let's go to you on this. My 85-year-old wealth manager always tells me to buy assets, not promises. But I I do agree. I, I think a lot of this is based off, you know, look, I'm Asian. You have to put your money where your mouth is. So if it's pre-revenue, I wanna see blood. You know, it's like I wanna see I wanna see kidneys, I wanna see livers. I want the guy to be like, I have four million dollars and I put three and a half million into this. Uh, but but look, I mean historically, if you look at all those companies that had disruptive technology and microcap, that next generation technology device, you know, it's like, we're going to save millions of people. Almost all disruptive technologies in microcap have basically gone to zero. Okay? It's really, really hard for something to have a relatively, you know, large valuation that's pre-revenue to be successful. And if you guys could show me examples after this, I would love to hear them. But typically, it's the pre-revenue is, it's, it's a hard bet to know that you're going to make money which is why we kind of bend more towards value than, than, mm -hmm. than storyline. So then in, let's, let's to speak to maybe if there's some companies maybe that are here listening to this right now. You know, for you guys, if you were to potentially consider a, a company that's pre-revenue as an investment, what are some of the things that you might look for potentially? Let's, Sam? Uh, I think I asked the question about what you look for in a pre-revenue company because I've never invested in one. <laughs> so I, don't, I have nothing really to add to this <laughs> question or conversation. Throw it back. All right. Throw it back to Chris. Or Jason. I mean, I, I think, I think you know, Connors raised a lot of good things. So you want them to have a lot of skin in the game, right? If they don't have skin in the game, why should you put any of your skin in their game, right? So that's, that's, that's very important. Well, which is why we look at open market transactions a lot. I mean, there's only been a couple portfolios for us that have consistently made money over time, and one of them are insider buys. There is nothing more positive than a group of insiders buying shares, either when the stock is at a 52-week low or even crazier at a 52-week high. So yeah, because the, the reality is we will never know as much about the business than management already knows, you know? So if you're talking a good game, you better back it up too. Gotcha. All right, so my next question, uh, this was one that we also talked about on the, on the call that uh, I really wanted to ask because I want to hear your opinions on this. And what would each of you say is a special situation for you? In other words, how, how would you define a special situation oh, investment? Yeah. Sam? Uh, I <laughs> Bankruptcy proceedings. <laughs> um, hey, at times, there's, you can get you know, some good, good distressed debt opportunities in bankruptcy proceedings, but ideally you invest post-bankruptcy and yeah. <laughs> not pre. Um, I mean, I think the definition of special situations is naturally, you know, it's the word special means that it could be, you know, there, there's different opportunities, right? One of them is distressed debt. Another one is like, I like to look at like post-mergers um, and then usually, usually mo when most companies make an acquisition, it ends up, you know, performing not as they expected. And so a lot of times the stock gets hit a lot worse than maybe necessarily it should have based on that because you know they're expecting something higher and in the short term you know the market's a voting machine and not a weighing machine. So um, I, th that's another special situation that I look at, and I really think any opportunity where you know there's a misallocation in terms of pricing and there's many things that can cause that, whether it's um, you know, an analyst changes their recommendation from a buy to a hold, you know, and the stock price drops a lot, or they even drop their price target, I think that can be a special situation. But really, 
the ones that I find most successful are management team changes and also like large shareholder changes as well too. So sometimes when there's a large institution that has to get out of a stock and maybe their fund is closing down or you know, now it's not in the Russell 2000 anymore and it's dropped out of it. Um, I think that, that those are the more recent set special situations that I've seen where I can find opportunities to buy, buy gotcha. companies. Connor? Yeah, I think for me, sort of the classical definition of, uh, you know, he hit on a couple of them, but, you know, spinoffs, uh, merger arb, you know, post-bankruptcy reorgs, um, you know, you name it, but some type of typ typically a corporate action that leads to an unusual set of circumstances or facts, um, particularly if it makes it uh, more difficult to analyze or requires some type of, you know, special analysis, particularly in the microcap space, you know, had a decent amount of success in, for example, microcap merger arb. It's a very <laughs> popular field for, you know, large hedge funds. Uh, the spreads tend to be a lot wider for smaller microcaps. Some of that's liquidity. Some of it's because there aren't a lot of microcap merger arb funds out there. Um, you know, it's a, the more specialized you get, you know, add microcap on top of it, and it's probably a decent, decent idea. <sighs> he was getting to mine. He was getting close. You. Let's hear it. Uh, strategic alternatives. Yeah. I mean, we literally, uh, I, I, at least for us, we've made quite a bit of money just basic, basically buying companies that are in play. And, you know, I think the advantages that you have is knowing management. You know, you can kind of feel their frustration if an industry is consolidating or not, if the valuations are out of whack. What's really fascinating is that there are some companies here, because there are smaller players, don't trade at the valuations of their bigger counterparts. Um, but going back to strategic, going back, it, it, was, it was basically arbitrage. So we, we spend a lot of time looking at these things and saying, okay, there's strategic alternatives. How pissed off has management been over the last few years in terms of valuation? How many people are buying up names in the space? I mean, Super Value was a phenomenal example of this SVU. You know, that you were basically buying a business that has the right assets in a consolidating space where both the groceries are buying everybody as well as private equity. And that turned out to be good. So, so yeah. Gotcha. Jason? Yeah, I, I, would, I mean, these are great definitions of special situations. I just would add that to me, special situations is all about asking, like, how much Liam Neeson do you have inside you? I mean, do you have that very, very particular Zero. set of skills you know, in order to, you know, to succeed in it? Or are you just sort of just following you know, what other people sort of know about? And I think that's one of, the, one, of the, you know, one of the great things about microcaps and one of the important things about microcaps is really, like, uh, you, you need a network of other people that you can, like, bounce ideas off of. And you can do that in microcaps more than any other area, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and sometimes you don't have that, those skills yourself, but you... You have a friend who you can trust, an acquaintance you know, who will, will basically be your guide through this special situation. And I think that's something that's really important, especially in, in, in conferences like this. You really got to like expand your network because it's all about like I, I like to say like it's all about like friends with financial benefits. That's what like, that's what so much of microcap investing is. <laughs> I agree with Jason. I There's really hope everybody wrote down that term. No, it's good. <laughs> friends with financial benefits. That's true. <laughs> You heard it here first. That's the only reason I <laughs> hang out with you guys. <laughs> you think I'm picking up the tab? <laughs> so so I, I asked this one question at every event, and I'd, again, love to get everyone's opinion here. Uh-oh. And if you could change one thing about the microcap ecosystem, what would it be? Chris, you're going last on this one. Sam, you first. <sighs> so one thing is that, um, especially with, I think, 
I'm not exactly sure what it, what specifically how what the rules work, but I, I guess a lot of microcaps now you can't trade away with a with a broker. Um, so, like that, I think that's happened the last like year, year and a half, right? I, I, Chris, we'd probably know more than me. Um, but yeah, I'll just pretend like I I've been paying attention to you and saying that's about. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I think really that's it. Like it's. It's an opportunity, but it's also frustrating because a lot of microcaps, a lot of like you know bigger investors, they actually like technically can't even like use their own um, like third party administrators to actually hold the right. stock yeah. themselves. Um, in the in the third market, it's 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 a structural thing, and so um, I think I think it's gotten a lot worse in the last like year year and a half based off of some. I think it's more like compliance issues within the third party administrators because there's a lot of fraud in technical like what they call so called penny stocks or microcaps. So. Um, that's that's really you know an opportunity, but also frustrating because as a you know technically institutional investor, it's hard to actually it becomes harder to actually invest. But um, I guess part of it is legwork to actually figure out like how I actually can invest in smaller companies and you know be okay being SEC registered and doing that as well too. One hundred percent. I think one of the biggest issues in the last couple of years is the fact that no one is really trading paper anymore. So you have all these certs that have, you know, you know, numerical values assigned to them and no one will take them. So what is it worth if no one's willing to accept? The answer is nothing. So there has to be there has to be uh, some, you know, fundamental change there. But please let's go on to Jason. <laughs> Jason. Oh, well, well thank you. Well thank you there, Chris. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, what I always find well, oh, I wish well, I'm, I'm sure I'll give me some companies tomorrow and they're going to do the same thing. You know, these are companies with like two buck chuck revenues, and they're talking about like grand crew, like total adjustable markets. You know, if you got like three million dollars in revenue, please don't tell me about like your seventy-two billion dollar market opportunity. You know, let's let's narrow it down a little bit. We're taking market share from Tesla. That's right. How many so, units did you sell last year? Four. Right. So I I think that's just one thing. You know, I would just love to see. You know, more. I mean, this is like. In microcaps, there's so much about like niches, right? Exploiting niches, exploiting opportunities. And so like, please, like, tell me how you're going to exploit a niche, mm -hmm. like a small, definable niche. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, what I, that's the thing that always gets underneath my skin. Connor? I would actually uh, sort of disagree on some of those earlier points just because I think a lot of the things, a lot of those issues they mentioned are real, but it's also what creates great opportunities uh, for people who do it full time. and. Uh, or part-time and really focus yeah, Jason. on it. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I hope it doesn't get fixed. But you know, the, the, the issue that I think really is pressing and kind of goes to Chris's issue earlier of you know, just the economy and the distribution, et cetera, is uh, the IPO process, right? Um, you know, I think I, I always try to ask when I'm looking at a smaller microcap, you know, how do they become public? Why are they public at all? Trying to understand that because often that leads you down a very interesting path and, and you can learn a lot doing that. But um, it's very hard for uh, companies uh, at the microcap level to IPO in the US. Uh, it's gotten harder. Um, I think that's a real problem. It's shifted capital to the private markets. It's shifted companies uh, you know, overseas where they won't have as, as good a coverage, likely will not receive um, the same valuation. Um, you know, I, I think that is a real problem and, and could be a, a, a real benefit if we could get more small cap IPOs, getting the public uh, to invest in good companies rather than just private capital. I don't think I have to prove to anyone here that most of our politicians are completely full of shit. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, my one sole fan in this <laughs> group of 100 people. Thank you. We're going out tonight. We're going out. <laughs>
<laughs> oh, okay, yeah, that's true. Um, but look, the, the reality is that every single politician pays so much lip service to small business. We love small companies. Small businesses are the future of this country. And yet every single law and policy and thing that they do is benefiting the guys who have the biggest lobbying dollars, okay? No one can dispute this anymore. I mean, this has been happening since Eisenhower. If they really want to put their money where their Mac is, okay, if they really want to show us that they care about small businesses, it doesn't matter if it's public or private or whatever. I have something that they can do. Any company that has less than a half billion dollar market cap, if you invest and you make money, whether it's one second, one day, one year, one decade, it's tax-free. That is the only <laughs> thing, that is the only thing, I know everyone's probably laughing, that is the only thing, that is the only thing that's gonna save everyone in this room. Because what nobody realizes, which is something that we've been saying to laughs and, oh, Chris, you're a moron, or, is that microcap has been dying since the crash of 08, okay? Every single year, there are more and more companies going bankrupt, going private, going dark. So there has to be something significant that happens that benefits not just us, but everyone in this room. And it has to be transformative. And the only people that can do it is the government. But also us. But also <laughs> us. Well, look, I mean, the, the trick is you have to, to really try to get this to change. You have to have a lobbying group. You have to have a lot of money. And you have to have influence. And these are none of the things that at least I have. <laughs> what, what, you know, <laughs> I was going to say, if anybody so in I this room likes to start a lobby group. <laughs> but when push comes to shove, I'm leaving. <laughs> so with that, you know, one, one of my last questions is, and uh, I'm going to ask some of you to uh, profit prophesize just a little bit here you know we're almost halfway through 2019 you know what do you guys think the rest of 2019 has in store for the microcap market uh chris we'll come back to you on that one. rms titanic baby <laughs> pre-iceberg no I'm just kidding. that was the raven oh are you asking me oh yeah oh shit uh, <laughs> assuming that uh trump kind of stays in his lane which is probably unlikely I would say hopefully flattish, mm -hmm. maybe up three to five. Gotcha. Connor? Uh, I don't really have a strong opinion on it, honestly. I think Let me no be your opinions. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't have, don't have a strong opinion. Gotcha. Jason? Uh, I, sometimes it, I don't know where the market's going to go in the short term. I don't think anyone really does. But I will say that probably one trend we're going to see among microcap investors is, is more of them are looking like outside the United States for, for opportunities, whether it's like countries, uh, small microcaps or in, in Israel or the UK. Uh, they've already looked in Canada. I think they're going to be looking, looking uh, elsewhere uh, increasingly. Singapore. I actually like my brothers in Malaysia better. I'm just kidding. I love Singapore, baby. That tax rate is second to none. Capital Capital Gates. Gates. <laughs> Jason, did you want to finish up? No, no, no. I can't, I can't top the Singapore race. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Where's the Australia guy? Come on. <laughs> Sam? I, I really don't have a thought or say. I, oh, whatever okay, Chris I says. Just, whatever Chris Lee says. I just said something. Flattish. To look, yeah, to look like <laughs> relatively safe. I mean, know, just generally, though, like long term, I, I mean, not looking the back half of this year, but I mean, I think 
generally, if you look out five to ten years out, I, I promise you, I mean, I'm pretty confident things will be higher than they are today. <laughs> that's, that's what I'll say. So we're at the point now, we're going to open up questions to the audience. So uh, let's do this. Anybody have any questions? Hi, my name is Dr. Patrick Liu uh, from uh, Gags Ventures, uh, from the most beautiful country in the world, Singapore. <laughs> um, my question has uh, my, my question pertains to the future. You probably have heard that by purchasing power parity, China is number one, India will be number two, Japan is still number five. Uh, collectively, by 2030, ASEAN is going to be the fourth biggest economy in the world. But there are there are not many uh, investors looking towards the the direction in Asia. Why is this so, and do you think this will change? Because I think there should be more attention uh, to, especially small uh, micro-cap companies in, in Asia right now, yeah. Well, uh, well, that's a very good question. I think uh, the reason why there's not more focus on Asia is because what happened about 10 years ago in this country, where there was a, uh, an explosion of Asian companies that basically came public. And the reality was most of these companies did not do very well. And uh, for, for Americans, I mean, the, the kind of snub on Americans is we forget pretty quickly. It's much harder to forget when you lose 100% of your investment. So I think that there will be a time uh, in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years that the Asian companies will come back with a vengeance. And, and there will be names in there that, that are ultimately great opportunities. Anybody else? Did I answer that? That was a good answer. Yeah, yeah I would just say, um, I mean, in general, I think investors should be looking uh, more internationally than they have. That being said, I think the hindrance sometimes is, uh, one, corporate governance is yeah. not as strong um, as in the US. Um, sort of legal rights, um, you know, f you can fleece shareholders much more easily uh, internationally in general than you can in the US. Um, and then, you know, there have been a lot of, there have been a lot of frauds. Um, and and, and e even for the sort of well-performing companies, though, it's harder for um, an English-speaking American to diligence it. So if I only have, you know, so many hours in a day to research investments, um, I, I already have more than I can look for in sort of North America. Um, it's got to be even more compelling for me to want to go the extra hurdle of going through potentially foreign documents from sort of navigating that rift where I'm, ne I'm likely to never be um, in the best position to know a company better than any other non-insider if I don't live in that country. Um, and that, that becomes you know, more of an obstacle internationally. Chris, you would say that it takes one star to rise also to bring attention to a market. Oh, 100%. And look, the reality is there are some incredible Asian companies that open up at $45 billion IPOs. You know, it just seems like the, 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 the heavyweights in that region of Earth, you know, all wait until they have massive critical scale and ultimately go public. I think it's just going to be a lot harder finding smaller Asian companies in our space. But going to what Connor says, I think the cultural discrepancies are massive. You know, you really, for any investment that we've ever made in outside countries, we always have someone from that country ultimately give us the skinny on, you know, the culture, the business, you know, the, the management, et cetera. So it'll happen. It's just you need a few ingredients to ultimately be successful in that. I'd like to respond to what you just said because I think history has taught us there's always a first wave that always died. The first wave of automobile industry didn't survive. The first wave, or generally the first wave of internet business didn't quite make it. 
but I think we are now beginning to see an emerging trend of a second wave. And in response to what you just said, right? corporate governance is also beginning to change uh, in my part of the world. So, you know, as an assurance to you guys, look in the direction of Asia, I think there's- We will, I mean, some of the, some of the uh, most undervalued companies in the microcap world today are, are Asian companies. So I think when the proposition is that good, we're gonna take a, we're gonna take a closer look. The other thing I would just add is capital allocation. Uh, you know, there tends to be a different mindset um, for American companies in general. Of course, there are exceptions, but a different mindset for capital allocation in the U.S. than often there are in other countries. And I often get pitch stocks from you know people I really respect, and it's you know so and so uh, South Korean company trades at six times earnings, and it's you know and it's growing, and insiders own some stock, and it's well, what are they doing with the cash, right? Uh, because if that were in the U.S. Um, you know, someone would buy it out, right? And someone would, and so we would never get to six times earnings because people would know that there would be some buyout or management wasn't realizing value, there would be an activist. And a lot of countries, there are real hindrances to actually realizing value. So you get optically cheap stocks where it's really hard to actually realize the cash flow yield. Um, and that becomes a problem. Well, I was trying to convince Connor into buying my Nepalese uh, mountain rock climbing gear company but unfortunately, he was too smart and he said no to it. Well, I, it's a question for Connor, like in that situation in the South Korean company, like what are they actually doing with get their cash they're generating? Uh, they're hoarding it on the balance sheet, um, you know, which is not the worst, uh, but oftentimes, you know, you see acquisitions or you see related party transactions, right? It's a whole host of things and every situation is specific, which is why, you know, if you really focus on one market and you can find those outliers, Right, you can make really tremendous returns because you end up buying a business at six times that shouldn't trade at six times. But um, again, as like you know, an American, it could be hard to sift through those 100 companies and find the one. So it's where do you allocate your time? Jason? Yeah, and I would just like to add, like I mean, even like just like you said, it's like one name. I mean, you think about Canada, like the non-resource investors, you know, they see suddenly a Constellation Software, you know, and be such a gigantic success, and then you just pour in other other interest in the thing. And I, I just have to be, I'll just be very blunt. I mean, the reason why a lot of investors don't invest in Singapore is because they don't trust you. And until, you know, and that's trust Jason. I trust you guys. And trust is earned, right? And it takes time. And, and, and honestly, there's, you know, I, I'm, I've, I'm old enough to remember people investing in Japan, right? And, and that was a terrible experience. Oof. Right. And so, you know, um, unfortunately they, they associate, you know, Japan with, with, Singapore and other and other Asian nations, and, and they're just reluctant to do so. But like you know, but basically, there's going to be some very smart people who find the opportunities, and then eventually everybody will say, "I want to be like that guy." Because the great thing about investing is, is, is you know, once someone makes a dollar, someone else wants a, another dollar, right? So it's just a matter of time. So I think we have time for one more question. So Portfolio construction, specifically, um, minimum amount of stocks, maximum amount of stocks, and then weighting on both ends of the scales. Thanks, guys. Sam. Um, I like to be relatively concentrated. Um, I ideally have, you know, 10, 10 investments that are all very high conviction, which will be like 10% of the portfolio each. Um, that usually isn't the case. I mean, usually it's hard to get 10 at a time. Um, but I don't think there's much value in diversifying too much. Like I think past, you know, 10, 12 names, I don't think the value of diversification, you know, enhances, you know, the, what, what you actually know or, um, you know, what value you can or edge you can get in terms of company. So that's that's my ideal. I ended up I end up owning about 20 to 25 positions. I'd say total. Um, and then I try not to short too much, just because I think it's kind of like betting against 
the the you know it's like being a player gambling in a casino you know the casino usually has the odds in its favor so I think just shorting generally you naturally have your odds against you but it's a uh, occasionally I do short when I see opportunities. Jason, I would say that like I, I think diversification really should shift with the market opportunity where we are in the market cycle. Um, you know. Like you're coming out of recession, you probably have a lot of different opportunities. A lot of a lot of companies are on sale, so therefore you get the benefit of diversification, yeah, and and you also have a lot of upside. But but now in today's market, probably I, I concentrate a lot more simply because I don't see as many opportunities, and I still want a lot of upside. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm pretty concentrated, but I also run money for myself and my family, so that gives me a little bit more freedom to do so. Yeah. So in terms of uh, position limits, um, I tend to have a 15% at cost maximum. That's pretty rare. That's uh, you know once a year kind of thing on average. Uh, when I really like a company, um, it takes a lot of work to get there. Um, you know, ignoring the short portfolio, which is not a large percentage of what I do, I I then think roughly opportunity dependent um, about sixty percent small micro. I call them gems, sort of high quality businesses trading at cheap valuations. I think can you know double or triple in a, a few years. Um, sort of the, the remainder being about twenty percent. I call sort of generals sort of high quality compounders, not necessarily large caps, sometimes big caps, but uh, businesses, not a lot of churn, um, you know, doesn't take a lot of portfolio time either. Um, and then finally, the remainder, sort of 20% roughly being special situations, um, again, opportunity dependent. Chris? Yeah, there's no way I'm gonna match that answer. Um, <laughs> I think my investments are more like t-shirts, like I have a bunch of them, but there's only a few that I wear every single day. And uh, look, I mean, again, we're generalists. I mean, there are so many, there are so many reasons we would own a stock. I don't know how many reasons I have to sell one. And uh, over time, we typically find comfort in things that we understand. So the way I look at it, I own a bunch of names, but there's only five to ten companies that are absolute core core holdings. These are companies that we've done. We've known management for years. We've looked at the balance sheets. We've looked at the income statements. You know, uh, we know who else is involved, and, and I hope I answered your question. All right. And I think with that, I'd like to thank all of our panelists for joining us today. Yes, clap for us. Thank you all for tuning into the Planet Microcap podcast, and thank you, Connor, Jason, Chris, and Sam again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast iTunes and search Planet Microcap Podcast, and now on YouTube by searching Planet Microcap Podcast or go on to our channel at SNN Network. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap Podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of StockNewsNow.com, the official microcap news source, and the Microcap Review Magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week. Everyone.